0: You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Brothers and sisters, it's good to be here. I'm sorry that you are unable to be here in the building. I'm sorry, too, that we can't have the confirmation service that we planned, though I look forward to that, I think, in April next year and look forward to seeing you then. Well, let me pray as we come to God's word. God, our Father, your word is light and life. Shine its light in our hearts, we pray, so that we may live for the glory of Jesus. Amen. They say that the law is an ass. That is, the law is an idiot. And often that's true. Laws are so often convoluted, complicated, and confusing COVID laws, I find, are often a little bit like that. But do you think how law has developed in our world? The Ten Commandments, which we've just heard, 179 words. The Declaration of Independence to the United States of America, 1,322 words. The European legislation about smoking, 29,942 words gets worse and worse, doesn't it? And my guess is that we have had hundreds of thousands of words given to the details of when you wear masks, don't wear masks, go outside and all that sort of thing in the last 18 months. Every parliament makes new laws and there are an increasing number of laws. Very few are repealed. Every synod almost seems to make new laws and this coming week In Melbourne Synod, we will uh, revise and amend and potentially make new laws, even one law as in full legislation simply to produce a book, seems a little bit over the top to me. We live in a very litigious, legalistic and uh, legislative society. Who can remember all the laws? When you pass your driving test a year later, do you remember all the details of the the laws for the road. Who can always remember to even put on their mask, wearing in during these COVID times? Laws, laws, laws. Oh, for a lawless life, some might think. Well, the Judaism of the Apostle Paul's day, the Jewish thinking and practice of his day, was very legalistic. There had intricate rulings about different food laws and what you could do on the Sabbath and what you didn't do and so on. All sorts of loopholes about those laws as well and when there was doubt they made more laws to try and add to it and, and, and clarify it in full detail. Now on a good day uh, Jewish people delighted in the law. There are psalms to that effect like Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. Psalm 119, the longest psalm, about uh, the law as a precious gift from God, as it was. And for many Jews, they believe that keeping the law in every dot of the I and cross of the T would bring you somehow salvation from God. Now, into that context, Paul is writing Romans. And what you've already seen in this series, I suspect, is that Paul's analysis of the law is a little bit shocking for some Jewish legalistic sorts of people because Paul has made it clear that for Jew and Gentile without discrimination or difference, salvation is not through keeping the law at all, but rather through faith in Jesus Christ who died for us. So what about this law? Back in chapter 3, no one is justified by works of the law. And that would have shattered the thinking of many Jewish people of Jesus' day and Paul's day. In chapter 4, the law brings wrath, not salvation. In chapter 5, the law came in with the result, trespass multiplied. In chapter 6, you are not under law, you Christians that is, but under grace. And it's in that context that Paul comes to these words today the first half of Romans chapter 7. In the first part of today's reading, he speaks sort of about being released from law, but then surprisingly in the second part that we look at today, it's more about the defense of the law. Now in the old marriage service, uh, a couple would pledge to be married till death do us part. In God's eyes, what ends marriage rightly is death of one of the partners. And after the death of the spouse, the the widow or widower is no longer bound, of course, in that marriage. They are free. And so Paul says in the beginning part of this reading today in verse 2 and 3, thus a married woman is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies she's discharged from the law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Now, Paul is using marriage here as an illustration of the Old Testament law. In in the Old Testament, the sense is that the law is like a marriage partner. But Christians, Paul has said in chapter 6, have died in Christ. And so now they are free from that sort of legal uh, obligation, if you like, to the Old Testament law. Like your marriage partner has died, Christians have died in Christ. The relationship that binds them to Old Testament law is now broken. It's over. And now Christians are free to take, if you like, Jesus as their marriage partner to bear fruit and to live for the glory of God. Now that's really what, in an essence, Paul is saying in words that are a little bit complicated, I suppose. In verse 4 he says, In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Jesus so that you may belong to another, that is, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. That is, you've died in Christ to the law so that you now belong to another, that is to Jesus, in an exclusive relationship. And that relationship has the purpose of bearing fruit for God at the end of verse 4. Now the trouble is with law as a marriage partner, Old Testament law as a marriage partner, is that it brings out the worst in you. Someone I know is separated uh, in their marriage uh, a few months ago, and uh, her comment to me was, "We, we bring out the worst in each other. And so Old Testament law, though it is a good thing and praised in Psalms and elsewhere in the Old Testament, in a way it brings out the worst in people, surprisingly, we might think. So verse 5, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit, not for God, but for death. Now, far from preventing sin, the Old Testament law, Paul is saying, has aroused it, incited us, it's fomented us, it's within us. And far from leading to salvation, law actually leads to condemnation and death. How many times have you seen a sign that says something like, don't walk on the grass? And whenever I see a sign like that, I think, I want to walk on the grass. I might not even think about walking on the grass, but when you see a sign telling you not to do it, you think, oh, I might, might want to do that. I might want to walk on the grass. It's the same issue with censorship. We know that when films or books are censored by a society, it actually increases the desire of people to watch or read them. The great Augustine, who was bishop of Hippo in North Africa many centuries ago, wrote in his Confessions, a bit like a memoir, I suppose, that when he was at the age of 16 with a group of other adolescents like himself, they stole from someone's garden pears from a pear tree. And he wrote this My desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and the doing of what was wrong. That is, the desire was not for the pear. The desire was for doing wrong, for stealing the pear. Was it possible, he wrote, to take pleasure in what was illicit for no other reason than that it was not allowed? And I think sometimes we see that in our society and in our own lives. There are times when there's an illicit joy just by doing the wrong thing. And in a way, that's what the Old Testament law did for the Jewish people. It somehow aroused their sin, provoked sin. But Paul says that is not the case for those who are Christians. But now, he says in verse 6, we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive. The marriage relationship with the law is broken. So that we are slaves, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. We're freed from that Old Testament law bondage. Now, this idea of being the new life and freed to the new life of the Spirit is often misunderstood. I think Uh, new life of the Spirit does not mean freedom to do whatever you like, freedom to walk on the grass or take your mask off. Sometimes you hear might hear people say, "Oh, the Spirit has led me to do this and this," and I think, "Hang on a minute." That doesn't sound like the Spirit of God to me. I've heard people say, Christians say, that love is all that matters. And because I now love that person rather than this person, it's okay to divorce or even have an affair. Well, that's not what Paul is meaning here. The whole purpose of Romans, you may remember back to chapter 1, verse 5, is to cause the readers of this letter to come to the obedience of faith. Not freedom to do whatever they like, but to the obedience of faith. The Old Testament law was wanting obedience. So too is the gospel of Jesus wanting the obedience of faith. And Paul in these chapters, having explained the the freedom of of faith in Christ for salvation and the great grace of that, Now in these chapters, let's say 4 through to 7 and into 8 in in the next couple of weeks, Paul is using different ways of speaking about why we should be obedient in faith. And he spoke in chapter 6 of freedom and slavery, and here the image of marriage to express similar ideas. That is new life in the spirit, because we are now, if you like, wedded to Christ and not Old Testament law does not mean a life without God's law. In fact, the Old Testament law itself looked forward to the work of the Spirit to write God's law not on tablets of stone like the Ten Commandments, but to write them on the heart that God's people may love God and live obediently. And Paul is now recognizing that in Christ the gospel has brought us to this point. The old marriage to the law, the written code as he calls it, was powerless to save. It led to bondage, sin and death. It was a good thing, but it was powerless. The new marriage to Christ has the law now written on the heart by the spirit. And therefore there is power in this new marriage to Christ. Power to save a freedom to bear fruit for God, for eternal life. So having described that in the first six verses, Paul then asked the rhetorical question, what then should we say that the law is sin? And we might almost think the answer to that could be yes, but it's not. By no means, in fact, it's quite strongly not. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. That is, sin tells us what the law is. Without the law, sin is undefined. The law then has a good function and purpose by defining and therefore revealing to us what is sin. Paul says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, do not covet. But sin, not law, sin seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. What he's saying there is the law is good but powerless. It is sin that is powerful. And put the law alongside the sinful, powerful, sinful human nature, law stands no chance in a way. Law will actually exacerbate, provoke and arouse our sin. Our covetousness is the example that Paul gives here, but it could have been any sin that he used as an example. Now, that's a good thing that the law does, to show us what is sinful, to guide us into what is right. But he's demonstrating here the problem, you see, is not the law. The law's powerless, admittedly. But the problem is not the law itself, but actually sin. Sin seizing an opportunity He says in verse 8, as if sin was a living being, almost perhaps the perception of sin like the serpent in the Garden of Eden here. Sin like a powerful force, a, a beguiling powerful force. Sin using a good law, but to deceive us, leading us to death. Well, Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived. Well, Paul's whole life has been lived as a Jew and, and with the Jewish law. But when he speaks of I here, it's almost as though it's the whole history of the Jewish people. Before the law came in, and the first law came in the Garden of Eden, people were alive. There was no sin. But when the commandment came, sin revived. And I died. People died. Because the very commandment that promised life to me proved to be death. Not because the commandment was bad, but because it was powerless to deliver on what it looked forward to. And again he says in verse 11, echoing verse 8, For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. But he then says in his conclusion to this paragraph, So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and just and good. The issue is not whether law is good, it is good. But that the law actually is powerless. So when a murderer goes to jail for killing someone it's not the fault of the law, it's the fault of their sinful nature which breaks God's law. One of the great conjobs, I think, of modern society is that we are told that people are good. Politicians play that. Oh, the Victorian people, they're very good. The Australian people are good people. And it plays to our egos. It flatters us. Secular humanism is founded on the, the goodness of humanity. And I think too many of us Christians have been conned and deceived by that. And somehow we think that a bit of education, a few more laws is going to prevent evil. Never. Never at all. The reason we have so many laws increasing in our society is because, in fact, we are so sinful. Because we fail. Because we're devious. Because we're deceived. We're always looking for loopholes to indulge our desires. Whether it's to reduce our tax or to work out how to see other people in a COVID time. God's law is good. It's us who are not. But we'll never be saved by God's law. Because though good, it is powerless to save. But You see, God's law from the beginning, even in the Old Testament itself, has its goal in Christ. It is looking forward to the power to be added to it. It recognises its own powerlessness. That's why there's a sacrificial system. That's why it looks forward to the law being written on the heart, the circumcised heart, the heart of flesh, not stone in the Old Testament. God's law is good because it tells us what sin is. It's good because it convicts us of our own sin. And it's good because it directs us to Jesus who is powerful to save. It leads us eventually to Christ. Let me give an illustration to finish. The other day I thought having read Winnie the Pooh that I would do an expedition to the North Pole. Thought that'd be a nice thing to do in COVID times. Surely it's not more than five kilometers away from my home. So I looked around and found a sign that said North Pole. So I thought oh, that's the right direction. Good I'll get there. Well of course I didn't and I wouldn't. It doesn't matter how many signs there are. My own feebleness and frailty physically is going to prevent me from ever getting, I think, to the North Pole or the top of Mount Everest or whatever it might be. It's not the sign's fault, but it's my fault, my weakness. Well, the law of God is the sign that points to Christ, but it doesn't take us there. It points the right direction, but Christ is the power to take us to to the right place. The law points to the right place but Jesus is like the power to get us there the law points to perfection Jesus is perfection and therefore we are saved in him but saved for godly living saved for the obedience of faith in Christ let's pray gracious God we thank you for the powerful gospel of Jesus powerful to save we thank you for the law which guides us how to live and guides us ultimately to Christ. And we pray that we as those wedded to Christ may live the obedience of faith, bearing much fruit to the glory of God. Amen.